The scripture reading today is from Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, that's where we'll be at. While you're turning there, I just want to say a few things, and um, just thinking about uh, hearing from Chris and Brandon earlier about Upward and uh, how encouraging that is, and uh, you're hearing about Upward and VBS and all of this. So I just want to say, you know, right from the start here, thank you to, uh, to so many of you who are jumping in and serving just across the board. Uh, I think about Upward, you heard about that. I think, too, you might have noticed, hey, there's some areas in the building that are missing carpet. Uh, last Sunday after church, there was a huge crew that just came out and, and, and just ripped out all the carpet, and uh, you'll see uh, new carpets being put down. And so there's another aspect of the ways people are serving, and uh, so many other areas, children's ministries and student ministries and, and across the board, thank you for the ways in which you're serving. Uh, thank you also for uh, just your patience with us. I know the last, uh, last few years really have been quite a bit of transition and tumultuous, uh, particularly with staffing, and none more so than a senior pastor transition. And I want to say thank you uh, from my heart to yours. Um, thank you for the patience you've shown with us in that, and the love and encouragement and support and, uh, that, that you've shown to both myself and Dan. Uh, it is uh, deeply appreciated, and I've used the word uh, miraculous, and I think it truly is that, uh, what has happened here. So thank you for that. Thanks for your patience with us, too, as we continue to search in uh, where uh, uh, some of you might know we're uh, looking for two other staff positions, one of uh, one person to come in and really help disciple and pastor our families, and uh, another person to come in and help us with musical worship. And so uh, be praying on those things. We are in active searches for both of those positions, and uh, be praying with us about that. But in the meantime, thank you to all of you who have stepped up and uh, are serving. Uh, I mean, thanks to Holly Allen and uh, Dave Schwan and Brad Carr and Darla Plice and the whole team that you see up here. I mean, right, we're worshiping. We're singing, right? Um, thanks to uh, Jill Bell and Bethany Carmen and uh, with the Children's Ministries and so many other areas. Um, so I, I just want to say thank you as your pastor here. Um, thank you for the patience you've shown for us, for the love that you have, and for your 
your continued prayers. It, uh, that truly means a lot. It's a joy to be your pastor. And uh, that what motivates all of this, or what should and must motivate all of this, is when we keep our eyes fixed on the cross. Um, we just sang about it. We just read about it in Galatians. Um, so let's dive in and see, okay, what, what does it life really look like when we are fixed on, focused on the cross of Christ? So we see in Galatians chapter 3. Paul's main concern in our text this morning is to answer the question or to address the question, okay, how is it that we are blessed? Maybe even this morning you said something, okay, oh, how are you? Oh, I'm blessed. All right, how do you know that? Or you post on social media, I'm hashtag blessed. Okay, how do you know that? We want to live the blessed life. Okay, what does that look like? We all want to be on this road to blessing, but how do we actually get there? Well, where we ended last week in verse 9 of chapter 3, look at what Paul says. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then you jump forward to verse 14, which is where we'll end today. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in other words, this is bookending our text for this morning, and the question is this. All right, so you Gentiles are blessed in Abraham. How does that happen? That's what verses 10 through 13 are unpacking. How is it that we are blessed? And the answer is that we are blessed by a curse. That Christ was cursed so that we could be blessed. That Christ took the curse that we deserve, that we sit under, so that we can receive God's blessing, just like Abraham did, through faith. That's where we're going this morning. That's what we'll see here. And we'll pick it up starting in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. What we see is that our works lead only to the law's cursing. It leads to the law's cursing. We sit in our own efforts, in our own striving, in the own works of our hands, we sit under the curse of the law. To argue this, Paul uses several Old Testament quotations. There's three of them in these few verses that we just read, in fact. And that will help us see what he's really getting at. The first of these quotations comes in the second half of verse 10, when he says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Quoting Deuteronomy 27. Now, Paul, quoting Moses, explains that everyone who does not keep the entirety of the law is cursed. Yet he is even more forceful when he introduces that quotation. Look at the beginning of verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So, so the passage in Deuteronomy is condemning anyone who breaks the law is under the curse. And Paul takes it a step further and says, no, no, anyone who even relies upon the law is under a curse. And you say, okay, what, what's going on there? What Paul is doing is he's implying another step. He's implying an additional truth to this argument. And what he is implying is this. No one keeps the whole law. No one keeps the whole law. 
Because that means, all right, if, if there is a cursing that comes with law breaking, and Paul says anyone who is even relying on the law is cursed, he's assuming that everybody breaks the law. And he is very right for doing so. The Old Testament was very clear about this fact. For example, in 1 Kings, we read this, there is no one who does not sin. Or Solomon says, there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Paul is very right for implying, for assuming that there is no one who keeps the entirety of the law such that anyone, any person who relies on works of the law as a means of attaining a right standing with God is in fact cursed. That's what he's saying here. So what Paul is arguing against is the failure to keep the law. Nowhere does Paul rebuke someone for a desire to keep the law, for wanting to keep the law. He rebukes them for failing to do so. That's his argument against the, Galatia, the, the, the false teachers in Galatia as well. In chapter 6, he says this, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So he's saying, even these people who are coming along and saying, you've got to do it by works of the law, including circumcision, Paul goes and says, no, 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 their issue is they're breaking the law too. If you desire to keep the law, if you desire to obey God, that's not a bad thing. But Paul will rebuke, Paul will rebuke people for saying uh, either for failing to keep the law or for thinking you can actually keep all of it in the first place. That's Paul's charge is you're foolish if you think you can actually keep all of the law. But that's what's necessary if you want to attain salvation through it. So that's why we, we need what's in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, here's another quotation, the righteous shall live by faith. It's evident no one is justified before God by works of the law. We saw that in chapter 2. Paul makes it abundantly clear. You are not saved by works, but by faith. You're justified by faith in Christ alone. And then he introduces in chapter 3, Dan preached on this last week, he introduces the example of Abraham to illustrate this. He says, okay, look at Abraham, Father Abraham. We all look, okay, how was he saved? How was he made right with God? How was he justified? Well, it was by faith and not by works. Back up to verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God credited Abraham as righteous purely by faith, not by anything he did. This is evidenced by the fact that when the Old Testament tells us this, that God, uh, right, uh, Abraham was counted righteous by God for his faith, that was 14 years before he would be circumcised. So it's foolish to suggest that circumcision was the means of his standing with God. That was 430 years before the law was given. So it is foolish to suggest that the law, keeping the law, was the means of his standing with God. No, no, no. It was not circumcision. It was not the law. It was not any of that. It was faith in God. And the same is true for you and I. It is faith in God that justifies us. Faith in his son, Jesus Christ, alone. And so he quotes then from Habakkuk 2, For the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's been arguing this all along, but now he introduces a new piece of evidence into his argument with this quotation to show the Old Testament's been teaching this all along as well. This is not a new invention that comes after the cross of Christ. This has always been the way of being right with God. It is by believing in him and not relying on your own 
efforts. The righteous shall live by faith. The road to life is through faith, not works. And so then in contrast with the law, look at verse 12, or with, the, or with faith, look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Quoting Leviticus 18. So he contrasts the law with faith. The righteous will live by faith, but the law is not of faith. What? It's of works. But it could be interesting to look at the quotation he uses. It could be odd on face value. Because he says this, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he says, the one who does the law shall live by the law. So wait, what, what's, he, what's he saying here? Is he, is he contradicting himself? No, what he's doing is he's further emphasizing, if you are looking for life based on the law, you'd better keep all of it. You will live by the works of the law. You must keep every single law perfect. That's what he said earlier. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you're wanting to get to, to life, get to blessing by works of the law, okay, here it is. Keep every single one of them without fail perfectly. And there's not even any sacrificial system anymore to help you out with that, to make atonement when you go astray, because Christ has rendered all sacrifices impotent because of his once-for-all sacrifice. Good luck. We can't do it. We cannot stand under that weight. We cannot stand under the weight of keeping the law, of doing all of it perfectly. Left to our own devices, all it leads us to is God's curse. Do you see the utter foolishness of trying to attain your own standing with God by the works of your hands? It's like driving down Claremont and thinking, I'm going to get to Main Street, ignoring the sign that says road closed ahead. We're all on the road to blessing. We want to be. And if you think you're going to get there by works of the law, you're ignoring the sign that says bridge out ahead. The only place it's going to lead you is curse. It is the wrath of God. It is the right judgment for your sin. There is a future that awaits those who rebel against God. There is a future that awaits those sinners who break the law. There is a future that awaits those who are under God's curse. And that future is an eternity in hell, apart from any enjoyment of God's presence, where God is not absent, but his mercy certainly is. And all that remains is his judgment, his wrath, and his curse forever and ever and ever. Works of the law will only lead you there, but never to blessing. But that's not where our text today ends. Look then in verse 13. Because here's the reality, that even though that road, the bridge outside, God has built a bridge. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What we see is gloriously Christ's curse leads to our blessing. Christ is cursed so that we can be blessed. So even though we are under the curse of the law, even though we are rebels against God's will, there is a way to escape it. And it's this, Christ was cursed for us. It says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. This theme of redemption runs all throughout the Bible. Paul will return to it in Galatians of freedom and slavery, 
redemption is the theme of, of, of purchasing, buying someone out of slavery. That's what Christ has done for us. He has redeemed us, freed us, purchased us, bought us from the curse of the law. So that we no longer sit under that, but sit in blessing. See, what God requires as a payment for sin, God provides. You know, the law had a lot to say about blessings for obedience. And the law had a lot to say about curses for disobedience. You know what the law never said? The law never had blessings for the disobedient. The law was incapable of doing that. But only in Christ are the disobedient actually blessed. Only in Christ are sinners actually loved with an everlasting love, not under judgment, but grace. But God actually justifies the ungodly. He actually saves the rebellious. He actually redeems the cursed. That is good news. That's the hope of the gospel. You say, how did he redeem us from that curse? By becoming a curse for us. It happened upon the cross. We see another Old Testament quotation, this one from Deuteronomy chapter 21. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, all the, all the kids in here are starting to get nervous because like, does that mean after church I can't run outside and climb a tree and hang from the branch? No, no, that's not what this is saying. In the context of the Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy, it refers to a criminal who was left hanging on the tree after he was dead such that it was a, a, a clear evidence to those around, this person's been cursed by God. But the New Testament writers in the early church were very quick to recognize that that passage in Deuteronomy was applied to Christ. It was fulfilled in Christ. So the early church began using a a unique phrase even for crucifixion. Sometimes they wouldn't even call it the cross. They would call it the tree. We see this, for example, in Acts chapter 10. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. So they're, they're clearly saying, okay, Christ was hanged on a tree. But what was the significance of this? Well, they also were quick to recognize that as well. Paul is not the only one who sees this. Right? When Paul says he became a curse for us, Peter also says the same thing. First Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. So when the early church and the apostles looked at Deuteronomy 21 and they saw cursed as everyone who was hanged on a tree, they said, that's Jesus. But he was not cursed because he broke the law. He was not cursed because he had sinned. He was cursed because we had sinned. Paul says here, he became a curse for us. For us. See, when Adam sinned and he ate of the fruit that he was commanded not to eat of, right? he took the fruit and he ate it, he was cursed. And you and I still share in that very same meal. Now, we might not physically eat of the same fruit, but we, 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 we eat of sin and we share in the same curse that comes from the same disobedience as Adam. So each one of us willingly and eagerly takes a piece of fruit and eats it. And we see the devastating effects of the curse all around us and within us. And so we we realize then, when we take a bite of this fruit, we are no longer in Eden, but we are in the barren wilderness of a broken world. And so we stagger about 
fruit firmly in hand, wandering aimlessly until we see far off in the distance, there's a hill. You get closer and you realize at the top of the hill there's a cross and there's a man hanging up on it. And so you, you stagger up and there's a crowd around the cross. And so you come and you start asking around to the people around, tell me, who is that guy up there? And eventually you find someone who answers and says, what? That's Jesus. He's the Messiah. Come to save his people from their sins. And when you hear that, there's two options. You can say, huh, it's interesting. Take another bite of the fruit, turn and walk down the hill. Or you can drop the fruit, fall at the foot of that cross. and say, this is what I've been looking for. At that other cursed tree, I found nothing but evil and wrath and brokenness. But at this blessed tree, I have found life and hope and forgiveness. And every person who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. Not by works of the law, but by faith. And when that happens, we can drop the fruit and we can turn and, and follow after him in life. Because the man on the cross said we could come and that's enough for us. So the Galatians were presented with two at the beginning of chapter 3. Paul tells them, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It wasn't that they were physically there seeing it, but Paul says, nonetheless, you guys have seen the cross. Their gaze had been directed to Calvary, where the Son of God died for them. Where the Son, where the, where the, where the Son of God, the Messiah, bore the wrath of the triune God in our place. See, for Paul, it all centered in on the cross. For the one who stands in Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed, freed from the curse of the law. We see the effects of the curse all around us. It's far-reaching and pervasive in our world and in our hearts. But Christ has taken that curse upon himself. And when we understand that, we understand that it has massive implications for our lives. As the great hymn puts it, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. If that's true, that he causes his blessings to flow as far as the curse is found, then let's take a few moments and understand how that impacts our lives, our hearts. I want us to briefly visit six implications of this. Six aspects, areas of our lives where we have been freed from the curse because Christ was cursed for us. The first is you are freed from the curse of the law. Freed from the curse of the law. See, you and I could never keep the whole law. We've, we've already established that very well. And so that means we stand guilty before God in our own efforts. And yet, in Christ... We have been freed from the rules and the regulations and the strivings and trying to, to, to merit it on our own doing. And that means you are freed to rest wholly in the work of Christ and not your own. And maybe for some of you, that's the message you really need to hear today because life is just totally exhausting right now. You're trying to figure out how you can measure up at work and you just feel like I'm always behind. You feel like you're failing as a mom because you just don't have your act together and you're not really sure what you're doing. Maybe more generally, you know something's happening 
You're not the Christian that you should be, and so you feel lost. But maybe the message that you need to hear most today is this. Rest. Rest in Christ. Rest in his work for you. He has done it so you can lay down your strivings. Being free from the law doesn't mean it doesn't matter now how we live. No, we still want to pursue Christ. But it means the way we live is by resting in him. Laying down our efforts and saying, it's by faith. You know, Spurgeon illustrated this uh, by describing two men who got ready to go from England to America aboard a steamboat. Tells you how long ago he lived. Um, One of the men was strong and powerful, and he struck a very robust figure. The other was a little child who was unable to walk and needed to be carried by his mother. And Spurgeon asks, will that first man, that strong man, reach America safely? The answer is that he will, as long as the ship does. And then he asks, will that second man, the, the, the weak child, reach America safely? And the answer is that he will, as long as the ship does. Spurgeon concludes this, their safety lies in the same place. Their condition does not affect their transit. But is there no difference between the child and the man? Assuredly, there is a great deal of difference as to many things. But there is no difference about the fact that their passage across the ocean depends upon the steamboat rather than upon themselves. The strong man could not walk across the Atlantic any more than the child could. They are alike incompetent for the passage if left alone, and are alike capable of it if placed on board the same vessel. So if you meet with a great saint, say to yourself, my honored brother will get to heaven through Jesus Christ, and I, a poor babe in grace, shall get to heaven in the exact same way. I want you children of God to feel this. Are you on board the covenant transport? Does the blood red flag fly at the masthead? Then if the weakest believer is not safely carried into port, neither will the strongest child of God reach those fair havens. If that ship of free grace goes down, Peter and Paul must sink as well as ourselves, for we are at sea in the same vessel. Our confidence is in no measure or sense in what we are, but all together in what Christ is on our behalf. We depend on Jesus and rest in Jesus by a simple faith, and the brightest of martyrs and apostles has no surer ground to rest on. Friend, rest in Christ today. Rest in his work for you. He has done it. Even the weakest faith placed truly in Jesus Christ will lead you safely home. So you're free from the curse of the law, and you're also free from the curse of God's judgment. From the curse of God's judgment. The most serious of all of your issues is that you will stand guilty before a holy God who must and will punish sin. He is filled with hatred toward sin and toward all who practice it. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, you will never have to wonder what God thinks of you again. You'll never have to wonder if God loves me. You'll never have to wonder if God is for me. You'll never have to wonder if God accepts me. Because you know. You never have to fear that God will one day lose patience with you and decide to just cut you off. Maybe other people in your life have done so. Maybe it's a parent or a spouse or a friend who one day just picked it all up and left. But because Christ was cursed for you, you never have to wonder whether God's going to do that. Whether one day God's just going to get so sick and tired, okay, that sin that you're going to commit tomorrow, is that going to be the tipping point that's going to cause God to stop loving you? 
Because Christ was cursed for you, you never have to wonder. You never have to doubt God's love for you. That he who chose you before the foundation of the world and loved you such that he sent his son to be cursed for you will not stop loving you tomorrow because of that sin. And he'll never stop loving you forever and ever and ever again. When you, have, when you look forward to the future, you have nothing to fear and everything to enjoy. Your future will not be one as a sinner in the hands of an angry God, but as heaven as a world of love. God will never change his mind about you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not under judgment or curse or wrath any longer, but you are under freedom and forgiveness and life and love. And so bask in the love of your God for you. And if that's true, that we have been freed from the curse of God's judgment, then we ought to be the most hope-filled people around. See, we are freed from the curse of hopelessness. From the curse of hopelessness. Why? Paul has told them, it's before your very eyes that Christ was portrayed as crucified, meaning that you have seen very clearly where your sin is leading. You have seen very clearly that it leads to death and condemnation, and that the future that awaits everybody who is not in Christ is only cursing. You've seen that very clearly, but you have also seen clearly that he was cursed for you. So it's not of wrath, but of love. See, the God of the universe, under whose curse you fell as you dangled over the fiery pits of hell, has saved you by his mercy so that you will experience nothing but his love and his grace and his joy. For the next million years, you will experience nothing but the love and grace and mercy and joy of God. And at the end of those million years, you will discover you are no closer to the end of it than you are right now. And so will be our experience forever and ever and ever. And when we realize that that is true, do you realize how foolish it sounds when our Facebook page suggests that our hope lies more in who occupies the White House for four years? Friends, despair and hopelessness and fear all reign in our day. But we have an unshakable hope. A hope even amidst the grief and the sorrow and the pain of life. See, the Bible doesn't shy away from it. It says we grieve, but not as those who don't have hope. And so the storm clouds of life, you might see them swirling. It might be blocking out the night, making it hard to see and hard to trust. But we know that one day those clouds will part and the Son of Man will ride forth in victory and will make everything right. And so we have hope. Hope for the future. As Leah Organa beautifully has said, hope is like the sun. If you only believe in it when you can see it, you will never make it through the night. Maybe right now you're in the midst of a dark night, and even though you can't see the sun, you know it's there. And we have the light of Jesus Christ shining forth in the darkness, reminding us there is hope. And so we ought to be, of all people, those most filled with hope. We are also freed from the curse of sin from the curse of sin. Now, the ultimate curse of sin is death and is judgment, but all around us, we see evidence of sin's reign. Creation itself is broken. Our hearts are broken. But the one who is in Christ has been freed from sin's curse, which means you don't need to run to all the vain things that might charm you the most because they have been sacrificed to Christ's blood. I think of a moment in a cartoon I remember watching, and there's a humorous moment where the main character is thirsty and he wants a drink, and so he goes to a vending machine and wants to 
get a drink, and it winds up being stuck. So he reaches his arm up to try to grab the drink, and his arm winds up being stuck. Well, as he's waiting for the authorities to come, he is still thirsty. Nothing's changed about that. So by the time the authorities arrive, they find his other arm is now stuck in a different vending machine trying to still get a drink. And they come, and they bring a chainsaw, and they're getting ready to cut his arms off to free him from the vending machine. And they ask him, are you just holding onto the can? And once he let go of the can, he can pull his arms free and walk free. The only thing that was causing him to be stuck was his own grip on the can. And for those who are in Christ, the only thing that is causing us to be stuck in sin is our own grip on it. That Christ has freed us from the power of sin. He has freed us from the penalty of sin. He has freed us from the curse of sin. And yet we still cling to it and grab it. But right now, today, you can walk in freedom from it. Augustine had a helpful formulation when he said this, right? And and pay attention, it can get a little confusing. But he says this, right? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were able to sin, and they were able not to sin. But when they sinned, ever since then, humanity has only been not able to not sin. So, you know, we can't help it. But in Christ, now we're able to not sin. And one day, we will not be able to sin. But that means right now, in the here and now, in the meantime, we're able to not sin. You can walk in holiness right now, moment by moment. I'm thinking, in the scope of your life, sure, we still sin, we still stumble. But the moment by moment choice, am I going to choose sin or choose righteousness? In our old self, we had one option. But in Christ, we can now choose to leave that sin behind and follow after Jesus. Moment by moment, knowing we're going to keep sinning, we're going to still sin in this life, but moment by moment, you don't have to choose it. And so whatever it is, that that sin in your heart, and I'm talking about that sin that maybe nobody knows about, the hidden sin that you just think I can't defeat, the sin that has its grip so tightly on your heart that you've just resigned yourself to dealing with it forever, that sin, Christ has freed you from the curse of it. So you can walk today pursuing after him in obedience and joy and life. We've been freed from the curse of sin. We don't do this by simply trying harder. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, Paul asks? But we do this by walking in faith together with brothers and sisters in Christ as the church as we pursue Christ as a deeper treasure than anything sin could offer. And so we recognize that when we sin, shame comes from it, but Christ experienced the shame on the cross, so you are also freed from the curse of shame. Not just the curse of sin, but the curse of shame that comes from it. Now it's ironic in many ways how we have come to glory in the cross. It's a cross right up here behind me. It's all dressed up and nice and a nice display in a church. Some of you are wearing a cross around your necklace right now. And what you are doing is you are wearing the symbol of one of the most horrific forms of torture that has ever been invented. We are just so familiar with the cross. It shows how pervasive Christianity has become for us that we, when we look at the cross, we don't see shame, we see glory. But the cross was a source of shame. You ask anybody in the ancient Roman world, and they would say the cross was the most shameful, the most horrific, the most degrading of any torture method you could conceive of, such that a Roman citizen wouldn't even be crucified because it was, it, was, it was too beneath them. 
And there on the cross, naked and bloodied and shamed, hangs the one who created the world. He was shamed for us. He experienced the shame of sin that we deserve to experience and that we know all too well and we feel it in our hearts, but we are freed from it because Christ was shamed in our place. You know, this, uh, this month our country is celebrating Pride Month. It's where we celebrate the LGBTQ agenda. Behind this celebration is a desire to remove the shame and stigma that comes from these practices. Because these are things that real people feel real shame about, and so our culture assumes the cause of the shame is the external pressures around us. That other people are, are feeding into the shame, and certainly we, should, uh, we, we don't want that to be the case, and, but the, the, the assumed problem is the external pressure. And so what's the solution? Let's celebrate it. Let's remove the stigma, let's remove the shame and have the external pressures celebrate it. But see, Christians, we know there's something even deeper than that. It shouldn't surprise us when there is shame that comes from doing something that God calls sin. And we must recognize that, uh, that the, the, the real shame doesn't come purely from external pressures, but from an inward conscience that knows right from wrong. Now, I, I care just as deeply as anybody about removing the shame that comes from these things, but I just think there's a better way to do it than Pride Month will tell you. As Kevin DeYoung has said, one way to deal with shame is to convince yourself it shouldn't be there. There's our culture's solution. But the other way is to lay it down at the foot of the cross. You don't need to live in shame any longer, but the way to get free of that shame is not by getting everybody around you to celebrate your sin. The way to get free of the shame is coming to the foot of the cross of the one who is shamed for you and resting in him. And finally, you are free from the curse of death. Death is the one inescapable reality for each one of us. And though the true horror of death is what awaits those who are eternally under God's wrath, even for the believer, we still die. But the sting has been removed. As a kid, if you discovered a wasp didn't have its stinger, how would that change the way that you feared that wasp and ran from it? And so it is with death. Christ has removed the sting of death and done away with it forever when he was cursed for you. Paul writes elsewhere, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For that trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death's sting is sin, and Christ has freed us from the curse of sin. The power of sin is the law, and Christ has freed us from the curse of the law. And so Christ has freed us from the curse of death. Though we still die physically, Death cannot touch us spiritually or eternally. There's a pastor years ago at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia named Donald Gray Barnhouse. And when his wife was in her 30s and their daughter was still young, his wife passed away of cancer. The story's been retold many times and so, you know, with different details each time. But as the story goes, while he and his daughter were traveling to or from her funeral, his daughter asks him, if Jesus died for our sins, then why do we still die? And at that moment, a huge truck passes by them, and it leaves their car in its shadow. And so he asks her, 
would you rather be run over by that truck or by a shadow? And she responded, by the shadow, because that can't hurt us. He said, that's right. And death ran over Jesus Christ years ago so that only a shadow might run over you. It was only the shadow that ran over your mother, and she is very much alive today with Jesus. We've been freed from the curse of death. That we have the hope of life forevermore with Christ. Now these are six aspects, six implications of what it looks like to be blessed by God. That because Christ was cursed, we experienced nothing but God's blessing, but nothing but God's love, nothing but life and joy and freedom and forgiveness. That's a glorious reality. But there's one other area that Paul presses into about this blessed life. Look at verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, right? So Christ was uh, redeemed us from the curse of the law, but becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God's blessing leads to our spirit-filled joy. So when you stand in Christ, you are standing in the promise given to Abraham, receiving the blessing that was promised all those years ago. And it comes only through faith, not works. Now, if you say, okay, how, how does that play out? We'll, we'll dive more into it next week with Abraham, because that's where Paul continues to go. But there's two aspects of it that he pulls out in our text here today. The first is this. The blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles in Christ. Now, we are Gentiles. And what Paul is saying here is that the blessing promised to Abraham has come to us as well in Christ. Now, that's amazing. How does that play out? Well, here's the reality. Of course it came to the Gentiles. That's always been the design. When God blessed Abraham in the Old Testament, he says, uh, Abraham, I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to those around you. It's always been the point. The point's always been that the Gentiles would be received into this blessing. In fact, even by, by uh, just uh, the aspect of the promise is, Abraham, I make you the father of many nations, right? Well, if the blessing only goes to Israel, to the Jews, Abraham's the father of one nation. So for those false teachers coming in Galatia who are saying, hey, basically to become saved, to receive God's blessing, you've got to just adopt Jewish practices. Well, guess what? Abraham's only the father of one nation then. But if he's the father of many nations, it's because it has gone out to the Gentiles, to every, every corner of the, the globe. I know that does not make any corner of the globe. Every aspect of the globe has been reached by the blessing of God promised to Abraham. And this was received through faith. And one of the principal aspects of this blessing that Paul pulls out for us is this, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So God tells the prophet Isaiah, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. See, God connects his blessing with his pouring out of the spirit. And Paul picks up on that. When you are blessed by God, you are given his spirit who indwells you and lives with you. See, Christ was cursed for you so that you would receive through faith the fulfillment of his promise to bless you with his Holy Spirit who indwells you and lives within you. And he not only causes you to believe, but he also empowers you to obey to follow after him in more and more Christ-likeness. And Paul will pick up this, this language later in Galatians in chapter 5 when he says, walk by the Spirit 
you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The only way to not gratify the desires of the flesh is to walk according to the Spirit who has been given to us as God's blessing. He is the, the guarantee, Paul says elsewhere, of our inheritance. That is, that when we receive him, it is God guaranteeing all these other promises I've, I've made to you, you will come to inherit those. Why? Because my spirit lives in you, and he will see to it. This is an amazing, amazing reality. You didn't do anything to receive him, and you don't do anything to keep him. It's all by faith and God's good grace to us. And so how do we walk by the Spirit? How do we live by faith in accordance with the blessing we've received of being given the Spirit? Well, Paul's rebuke to the Galatians at the beginning of the chapter is this. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, the way to foolish living is to forget the cross. The way to cursed living is to think the cross was unnecessary and you can get to God on your own. But the way to blessed living, the way to spirit-empowered living, is one of faith, moment by moment, remembering the Son of God who is cursed for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you were pleased to curse your son Jesus in our place. That we deserve nothing but your judgment and you show us nothing but your grace. Thank you, Father. I pray that we would walk by your spirit whom you have given to us. Those of us who are uh, by faith standing in Christ, that you have given us your spirit. And Father, I pray that we would walk according to him in a way that is pleasing to you and not grieving to the spirit. I pray that he would empower us to live in a way that is honoring to you, glorifying to you, in obedience after you, but most of all, Lord, in a way that is resting in faith in Jesus Christ. You know, our Lord Jesus said, he says, when my spirit comes, he will glorify me. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would cause us to glorify your son all the more as we sing your praises, as we live a life that testifies to the fact that we know we couldn't earn it or deserve it, but because of our faith in you, you have blessed us. So I pray we would walk in that this week. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.